Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Alexander Watson on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Enduring the Great War, Combat, Morale, and Collapse in the German and British Armies, 1914 to 1918. This is a really terrific book. It takes on a very important question, and one that has probably occurred to you. That is, Why did the German and British and the French and the Russian, for that matter, why did these soldiers fight for so long under such horrendous conditions? It's it's a very good question, and it has, before Alex's terrific book, remained largely unanswered, I think. But Alex does a terrific job of explaining exactly how common soldiers in the First World War coped with the horrors of the trenches and how... After four years of war, at least on the German side, they became completely worn down by this experience to the point that they realized victory was impossible and therefore quit fighting. I really recommend that you pick this book up because it will change what you think about the First World War. I enjoyed talking to Alex today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Alex. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Not bad. Good. Are you, uh, you are in England, in Cambridge, England. Is that correct? That is correct. That's amazing. How is the weather there? And the weather is, is, is a little bleak, to be honest with you. I mean, English summers, they're not known for being hot and sunny. This way we'll go to Spain. Yeah, that's um, right. But, uh, you know, it's not raining. It's, it's just gray. Yeah. No, it's very sunny uh, uh, here in Iowa and, and quite hot. Um, and uh, I imagine my wife is working in the garden. Um, I am here interviewing you. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Alex Watson today, and we will be discussing his terrific new book, Enduring the Great War, Combat, Morale, and Collapse in the German and British Armies, 1914 to 1918. I have read this book, and I have to say uh, it is, unlike many history books, quite a page-turner. Uh, it, it's, it's really a kind of remarkable achievement because, as I was telling Alex before the interview, uh, the topic itself, uh, which is to say why people um, kept fighting in the First World War, is a terrific one. It's also a very difficult question to answer, but I think Alex does a great job of it, and I, enjoy, I will enjoy uh, hearing him uh, help us understand um, why uh, the British and the Germans endured as they did. Um, but first, Alex, let me ask you to begin by saying a few words about yourself. Okay. Um, well, I'm a research fellow at Cambridge University. That means I'm on a, on a temporary contract, and my, my job is to research, which is a great job to have. Um, I've been here for now three years, and um, before that, I was at Oxford, where I did my doctorate. Um, and indeed most of my other degrees. Um, I did for a couple of years in Germany, which was a fantastic time. And uh, and I come from London. Mm-hmm. Um, more there is, I don't know. I'm, I'm married. I'm married to a beautiful Polish girl. Um, and 
yeah, everything is uh, everything is good, and my my, my book is finished. So and yes, is, that's uh, right. How did yeah. you how did you become interested in history? Um, I don't know. I've always been interested in history. I mean, I guess I guess a lot of people just say I've always been interested in history, but I always have been. I I, I was I was very good at two subjects in school. I was good at history, and I was good at English literature. And I went for history because um, and after the postmodernist is going to sound terribly naive, but nonetheless, I still hold to it. It's sort of true. You know, it's about what happened, what actually happened, what people did, rather than stories that people have invented. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know. And for me, history is, history is always about people. Above all, it's a, uh, that, that, that may sound obvious, but when you do military history, quite often people write about machines or battlefields. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's about, it's about people for me and about how, how strange they are, and 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 how what interesting things they do, and 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 yeah, that's that that was that was really it. Mm-hmm. No, well, that's a very good answer, and it, it uh, your appreciation of humanity, I guess I would call it, really comes out in the book, and we'll have a chance to talk about that. But let me ask you this: How did you come to write this particular book? This particular book I came to write um, from a number of influences. The most important one was my supervisor Neil Ferguson. Um, I worked for a year before I started my doctorate as uh, as his research assistant, and I was um, I was looking for a, I was looking for a doctorate to do, and I, it had to be on the First World War. That I knew because I, uh, the First World War had always been a particularly big thing for me. It, it may be something to do with being English. I mean, the First World War has this sort of place in sort of English national myth- mythology about the worst war, how did anyone ever cope? And I just always found that very, very interesting. And when I started working for, for, for Neil, I, I was talking to him about this, and he had an idea about uh, about risk assessment. Neil, as I guess most people know, is, is by trade first and foremost an economic historian, and uh, he's very interested in, in things like... Um, prisoners' dilemmas and these other economic models of how people invest, what people do with their money. And um, his suggestion for my doctorate was different soldiers play different kinds of card games. Um, British officers played bridge in the First World War. Uh, German soldiers played something called scat, which if you've ever tried to... You can't really play scat unless you've been born in Germany or unless you've lived there for at least 10 years. I think countless friends have tried to teach me the rules, but you need such a sophisticated graph of, of statistics, and even the cards aren't don't have the normal signs on them, that, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a compli- complicated, complicated game, but in, in any case, it involves risk. And Neil's idea was um, perhaps depending on the card game that soldiers play, um, they treat risk in different ways, not just during the game itself, but actually on the battlefield. And he he, he said to me, you know, maybe you could do something with that. So I, I went away to the Imperial War Museum here, which is where British soldiers' letters and diaries are kept, and, um, and had a look for soldiers mentioning card games and what they were doing, but it's, it was impossible to... to Pull the notion of how they were how they were acting when they were playing card games and how they were acting on the battlefield together. So I went back to him and said, "This is a no go. I think this is going to happen." So he said, "Well, could you broaden it out in any way?" And um, and I thought about it and I thought, "Well, actually, maybe there is a question to be asked here about simply how people coped." Um, my mother is a psychologist, which I I, I I think helped a bit as well. Um, 
because it gave me gave me a bit more of a sort of psychological take on things. I, I, I had this interest already, but I, I went back to them with a with an idea about okay, well, you know, this was a terrible war, but nonetheless, most people did cope. You know, maybe I could do that. He liked the idea, um, and he insisted that um, I go to Germany. Mm-hmm. As well, um, my original idea, um, being monolingual at the time, was to do it on the UK. And he said to me, "No, you should definitely do something on. Okay, the, the UK is okay, but do something comparative. Do something on Germany as well." Mm-hmm. Um, and he convinced me that German was an incredibly easy language. He, he said, "You go to Germany, <laughs> be there for a few weeks. Won't be any problem. Pick it up in no time. Get yourself a girlfriend." Was his his his, his, his advice. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, and of course, when, when I got there, I thought, hang on a minute, but he was very right and very sensible. It, uh, yeah, I, I had two great years in Germany just on a sort of personal basis. I'd never been there until I, until I, I started the doctorate and started researching this book, but, mm-hmm. uh, it, it just gave me much, much more interesting take than just looking at, just looking at Britain, you know, the whole comparative thing. I, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you wrote the dissertation of how did it uh, assume this form? I know that you ask three questions mm-hmm. in the book and you mm-hmm. try to answer them. How did it uh, gel into that particular form? How did those questions appear to you? And, and what are they? Why don't you just rehearse them very quickly? Uh, well, the three questions that I asked in the book were, why did soldiers and armies fight for so long? Uh, that was the first one. The second one was, how were they able to cope psychologically with conditions at the front? And the third one was, why eventually did they stop fighting? And in particular, why, did, why was it the German army that stopped fighting? Um, well, that's a, that's a complicated question. I mean, for, for quite a long time when I was researching this, I didn't know exactly even what the questions were. I, I had this idea of the First World War was awful, which had been drilled into me from age five, uh, in, largely due to the war poetry that we had forced to imbibe for years and years and years. Um, so I, I, I started with that, and I guess I... I guess the three questions crystallized simply as I did the research. I mean, the first thing that I wrote was actually an article on German war volunteers, um, who in German literature have been sort of vilified a bit of these very militaristic but very naive students. And uh, I, I focused down on them to start off with just because they seemed a manageable group. Because if you're doing the whole German and British armies, that's, that's 20 million men. Uh, and if you're trying to sort of talk about individual coping strategies, 20 million men, it sort of it just becomes a bit mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing that article first on, on German volunteers helped because it began getting me to think a bit about, okay, why did these people volunteer? And when they were actually at the front, what are the different, what are the different mechanisms keeping there? What are the different pressures and motivations that, that, that either they have or that are being exerted on them? Um, and that really sorted the first question out the, the, about why did soldiers fight? I mean, as a sort of starting point, of course, most, most soldiers in the First World War were conscripts, but it was, it was a good place to start with these people who, at least at the beginning, actually wanted to fight. The second question also came from that a bit um, insofar as the volunteers were said to um, have a particularly high rate of breakdown um, so I was I was I was looking into that and of course that that led me to compare uh, them with conscripts as well um, 
Although, of course, that was also, that, that, that was, I guess, the, the core idea right at the beginning. And the, the final question, well, why did it stop? Well, if you're going to argue that soldiers were resilient and they kept on fighting, and why did they keep on fighting so long, and how did they keep on fighting so long, you've got to have a final chapter there somewhere. And in 1918, the fighting, at least on the Western Front, does actually stop. And uh, yeah, I, I just didn't feel anyone properly explained it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can tell you that I never understood it until I read your book. <laughs> oh, well. I'm, I'm not a historian of World War One, but which is uh, uh, probably going to be completely obvious in the course of this interview. But I, I found what you said uh, very convincing. Let's let's actually start though by um, talking a little bit about the particular stresses that were caused by the um, the nature of World War One. Um, you talk about uh, the peculiarities of World War One and how it impacted things like the f- uh, fight and flight reflex in humans. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you could say a few words about that, help us understand that. Yeah, well, in most accounts of the First World War, what's emphasized is the blood and the mud and the death and more death and, and, and horrible wounds and, 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 and discomfort and the boredom. And... Um, and, and this is sort of presented as being the reason why the First World War was the worst war, at least as far as the British are concerned. I, I think actually Stalingrad and the Eastern Front in the Second World War were probably worse, but nonetheless the First World War was was, was pretty horrendous. Um, but w- what I thought, when I, when I was sort of getting into this, I mean, in order to understand how soldiers cope, you first need to understand what they're coping with. Mm-hmm. And the way that I, I conducted my research was... Um, as most historians, I, I, I read the secondary literature to get an idea of what other people had said. But I went into the archives from fairly early on and started reading the letters, which was a complete shock because um, I started with the I started with the German letters, and uh, uh, at this point I'd had sort of six months German, I guess maybe six nine months German. So I, I, I was reasonably fluent, and I, I could and my passive vocabulary was good. But at the turn of the 20th century, the Germans had uh, a type of handwriting that they call Zutelin, mm-hmm. which is, um, it, it doesn't use the normal alphabet that we use today. Everything really looks like an S or an N. Um, and uh, I got this uh, I got this letter out of the archive. I, I, I photocopied it. And I, I photocopied it because I thought that it had the word toward death in mm-hmm. it. And um, so I thought this was a good place to start, you know, because I had to learn how to read this this, this handwriting. I, I took it back to show, show some German friends, and none of them could could read it either. And that really, really <laughs> opened my eyes to how awfully difficult some of this project was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I'd got over the, the, the hurdle of actually being able to read what soldiers wrote, um, what I was getting all the time was um, was that... The principal problem that I had with the front was not the mud or the blood or the discomfort or the death or all of these things that are emphasized, but it was, above all, a sense of not being in control, and quite an extreme sense of not being in, in, in control. And, and what, what they emphasized was that this was, above all, due to the shelling, especially if you were an infantryman, because if you're an infantryman sheltering in a trench and, you, and the enemy begins to shell you, then there's absolutely nothing you can do. You can't see the enemy, let alone fire back. And um, 
you also can't you also can't escape from it because at this point artillery ranges stretch for miles if you're in the front line there's there's no hope of running away and this is where this flight or flight, yeah, fight or flight mechanism comes in humans and animals are said to um, respond to danger in one of two ways either they uh, stay and fight it out or otherwise if possible they flee and the problem with this particular type of fighting in the first world war this very heavy artillery fire um, was that soldiers simply couldn't do either and what made that worse as well was uh, was the trenches because although the trenches protected them uh, actually very effectively physically they enhanced the psychological effect of the artillery bombardments because uh, they underlined the fact that soldiers couldn't flee. They were very claustrophobic. The space was very, very restricted. The vision was also, your vision was also very, very restricted. Um, so that really gave, my, gave me my entry into, okay, blood and mud and death, yes, they're all playing a part, but this is, this is really what, what is, is, is worrying soldiers in the trenches. So this is, this is what, what we've got to focus on in order to understand how the majority coped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you make a couple of good points in this section of the book that I um, wanted to highlight for our listeners, and maybe you could talk about those. One was how extraordinarily ineffective the artillery fire was. I didn't know this, but maybe you could talk about that for a second. Yeah, well, um, uh, you, I guess your listeners will have to read or, or even possibly buy, hopefully, the book. That's, um, that's what we're that's trying my, to get them to do, Alex. That, that's, that's, that's my plug. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, in order to, I don't know, to check the exact figures, but the, both sides just produced these colossal amounts of, 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 of shells, millions and millions and millions of shells, and of course even more small arms ammunition. And um, if you if you do the maths, how much of this stuff was actually fired and how much of it actually hit someone, not even killing them, the the numbers of uh, shells which simply didn't hit anybody, just went into the ground, didn't explode, or just 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 missed, a uh, uh, phenomenal. I mean, I think that it took, I think it was something like it took 15 shells even to hit a German soldier and to kill him. We're talking in the hundreds of shells. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, so the, yeah. I guess what I'm driving at here is that it's a little bit like 18th century warfare, 18th century cannons had a largely psychological effect. Um, you couldn't really hit anyone with it. The shells didn't explode even then. So similarly here, can we say that the shells were, uh, they, they had a primarily psychological impact? Oh, to some extent. Um I mean, it depends as well, I guess, what type of shells you're talking about. Gas was much more effective. Gas is always written off in the literature as being terribly ineffective because it didn't kill anybody. Mm. Um, and, okay, it killed a few people, but I mean, that's, that's basically true. But what it was effective at doing was taking people out of the fight by, by wounding them, even often for very short periods. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Shelley, Shelley had both, I guess. I mean, in 1916, it's, it seems as predominantly a weapon of destruction and this is this is what the British are trying to do at the Battle of the Somme they're trying to actually destroy the German trenches they're just trying to destroy the German units in front of them with the shell fire and it doesn't work mm -hmm. um, it churns up the battlefield um, German soldiers have deep dugouts which shells can't penetrate and when the British infantry go over the top then um, the Germans are alerted by their sentries come out and, and machine gun and and, and and shoot them all to, to, mm -hmm. to well Kingdom come, mm -hmm. and but by 1918, um, 
particularly, well, but both, both sides, the Germans and the British uh, are actually using shells in a much more sort of conscious fashion as a psychological weapon. The idea is to lay down a very short bombardment instead of these ones that last sort of seven or 15 days, um, but a bombardment which is totally massive and totally psychologically overpowering. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it literally stuns soldiers, the enemy in the front line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, of course, when the, when the barrage lifts, the, the, the uh, attacking infantry go over, and the idea is that the enemy was simply too, too stunned to be able to, uh, to react, and that actually seemed to work a lot better. So, yeah, I mean, you could say, you could say shelling is predominantly a psychological weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that... Um you know, it's difficult to relate to people is how loud these things are. Um, most Ameri- I don't know about most. Uh, I don't know about most people in the UK, but many Americans, and especially my friends, have never even fired a gun or been around a gun firing, and and have no conception of how loud uh, these artillery pieces were, either at, at the moment at which the projectile uh, escapes the barrel or when it hits and explodes. But uh, I imagine that it is. Um, it is totally deafening. I have seen myself uh, artillery pieces fired, uh, and they're loud. Uh, oh, and, yeah. And they're totally terrifying if, if yeah. you're not oh, used yeah. to it. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have an enormous amount of experience with artillery pieces, which I'm really glad to say. I mean, my, my experience <laughs> limited to, you know, we have the Queen here, so every now and again we get some 25-gun right. salutes. Yeah. So, but even they fire one after the other. So Yeah, no, yeah. I can only imagine that it was absolutely terrifying. So let's talk a little bit about how they... Um, how they coped with this? How, how did they cope? And, and one thing I want you to talk about a little bit, we can talk about it in a second, but that the Germans, uh, God bless them, actually studied this during the war, which I found completely fascinating. So let's start with uh, your, um, your assessment of how they coped. I guess my assessment of how they coped is, is, is amazingly well. I mean, the, the statistics, the psychiatric casualty statistics that the armies provide seem to seem to prove that beyond doubt. Of, uh, officially, at any rate, 5% of the soldiers in both armies suffered some type of psychological breakdown during the war. Now, admittedly, that's, that's got to be a massive underestimate. There's all sorts of issues about inability to recognize psychiatric casualties and sometimes um, a, a desire actually not to recognize them, to, to instead treat them as disciplinary problems rather than as psychological or medical problems. Um, so. Five percent is probably too low, but nonetheless, given the length of time that soldiers served in the line, either even psychiatric casualties were said to have served on average between ten and fifteen months. Yeah, these are these are these are people who who really, you know, put up with an enormous uh, enormous amount of, of what must have been totally terrifying experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, well. My argument is is that above all they they put up with it because humans are far more resilient than we're today inclined to give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this argument because I, I like two reasons. One and the most important as a historian is that I think it's true. Um, but the second is that if you're studying this stuff for four years, then if you're reading all these accounts of blood and gore and death, then it can get totally and utterly depressing um, and it can get very, very, very miserable, especially when you're working your way through a 
through a sort of set of letters from I don't know a, a middle-aged man to his family, and then you get to you get to the last one, and afterwards there's just a note saying so and so died in February 1916 due to a shot to the head or something like that. You know, it can get it can get terribly miserable because after going through these letters and as I said, you know, you know the handwriting, you get used to the handwriting. Um, you can actually you can actually get sort of become quite involved and 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 really feel miserable. Um, but I, if you think about it as yes, this this was a horrible experience, and I'm partly grateful that I never had to do anything like this. But that nonetheless people coped, and that what came out of this is actually proof that people are amazingly resilient. Um, I, I think it just adds a sort of it's a bit, bit of a sort of positive and a true take on 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 war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what it comes down to is um, people are incredibly good at fooling themselves, and people are incredibly optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, overwhelmingly optimistic. Mm-hmm. You you see this as a PhD student when anybody <laughs> asks you from the third year, you know, how is a PhD doing? You know, when do you think you finish? I'll be finished in three months. You know, and then you just that three months keeps rolling. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I've seen that myself. Um, the, uh, what, what particular coping mechanisms did they use? Well, um, it depended to some extent on the person, and it depended on the situation. I mean. You find that when soldiers come into the trenches, often they're quite curious. Sometimes, because many of them didn't have very much training, they uh, they were even naive, especially at the beginning of the war, um, when training was often pretty poor. Um, they have to prove themselves as men, sort of show a bit of bravado, and often you find that... Um, Greenhorns get shot or, or get themselves killed totally unnecessarily because because they're taking risks which they don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really what I think survival in the trenches comes down to. It wouldn't guarantee survival, but um, it would certainly increase your survival if you could assess risk optimally. That was the key. Mm-hmm. Um, greenhorns didn't do it optimally because they hadn't got to grips yet with the situation. At the other end of the scale, veterans often didn't do it optimally either because um, they had either, they, they'd seen so much, they'd been through so much, they'd taken so many risks that often they went one of two ways. Either they became totally terrified, um, which was not good for their psychological health um, and, and broke down, or alternatively they became utterly and totally fatalistic. Um, and this also wasn't good because people who become fatalistic don't take the necessary precautions to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find also veterans taking silly risks and getting getting shot as well mm-hmm. unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And what seems to have happened is that men needed time to adapt to the new environment. Um, and one of the ways, the, the, the principal method of doing so was was just getting an idea of gauging danger, you find that often after about a month, soldiers are able to uh, tell whether shells are going to land in their proximity or not, mm-hmm. um, just from the noise that those shells are making as they're going overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, they become able to use the uh, the ground. Um, they, they can identify dips in the ground to take cover. They can identify uh, parts of the uh, trench which are going to be perhaps insulated by, by the enemy. Um, 
So they, they get a sort of greater sense of their, their surroundings. And at the same time, one of the things that these letters and diaries, and also these psychological reports um, written at the time, suggest is, uh, is that soldiers on one hand became more fatalistic in that they, came to, they sort of came to terms with the notion that they might die, um, but at the same time um, had an intense urge to live, to keep on interacting with the environment, to keep an eye on what was going on around them, to keep an eye on, 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 on the danger. Um, so the fatalism that they had, the sort of at least the, the, the healthy ones, until they became sort of overwhelmed by everything, um, was was sort of skewed. It was on one hand saying, "Okay, I might die," but at the other time, but on the other hand, having this really overwhelming and amazing optimism to keep on going in the hope that they might get through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the optimism wasn't simply unreasoned, and that's 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 what I found most interesting about about the letters and diaries. I mean, it, it comes from a number of sources. One of the important ones is uh, is religion. If you, if you can't control the super uh, the natural world, then you uh, then you turn to the supernatural to control it for you. Mm-hmm. And you find that, um, of course, these are both deeply believing societies by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't very many soldiers in either army who would claim to be atheists. So most soldiers at least have a, some sense of, some vague sense at least of, of, of God. And uh, one of the ways of hoping that you'll survive is simply praying to God to, to, to protect you. Mm-hmm. Um, another perhaps less naive way is, is saying, well, okay, everything is, is, is for the best, and so I, I place myself in, in God's hands. But mm-hmm. if you can believe that there's some sort of, some creator, some Om, om, omnipotent being, I guess, who could, who was controlling things, even if you couldn't quite see how or why he was controlling them in the way he was. That in itself suggested that behind the surface chaos was actually some structure, and that in turn meant that the front appeared more, more, more certain and more predictable than it actually was. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you get all these, uh, you get all these amazing superstitions that soldiers do. I mean. Often we they, they go in over what we call a um, OCD obsessive compulsive disorder today. Um, all sorts of rituals that soldiers do, counting to a certain number, or swatting so many flies, or knocking on wood, or not bringing cards down into a dugout, or, or, or all of these sort of having 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 rituals, having having medallions, or some type of token which would keep you going, and which gave you sort of rules to prove to yourself that. If you followed these rules, then the gods would 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 look after you. And this seems to have been this seems to have been very important on both sides um, as well. There's particular emphasis on the German side, and I think perhaps particular it's particularly popular among Catholics, who of course can tap into all sorts of Catholic charms and uh, and um, you know medallions and saints and 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 and, and, and things like that. But it's even adopted by soldiers who have any very surface beliefs. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: um, But what was uh, were the were the Germans uh, in any way superior at coping than the, the the British, or vice versa? Were you able to determine that? It's very difficult to say. I mean, on the face of it, in the official psychiatric statistics, the German army has slightly fewer psychiatric casualties than the British does. But that could be due to methods of diagnosis rather than um, rather than an actual reading of the situation. Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting is that um, is that I, I'm not quite sure whether 
psychiatric um, distress presents itself in different ways or whether it's it's simply the um, the doctors who are looking at this who are presenting it in different ways. But often it, on both sides, um, soldiers somatize their um, psychiatric disorders. What, what, what that means is they present their psychiatric distress as sometimes physical symptom. They go lame or they think they've gone blind or they, or, 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 or they can't talk or this, this sort of thing. And, and you get that on both sides. There's plenty of literature on both sides to say that. But what particularly concerns the British are heart problems. And what particularly concerns the Germans, interestingly enough, maybe those are the poor rations, I don't know, but uh, uh, stomach problems. Um, you, get, you, you seem to get many more heart complaints, mm-hmm. psychiatric, psychiatrically caused heart complaints on the British side, whereas the Germans are constantly going about, on about stomach upsets and, and stomach problems. Mm, so. Interesting. How um, You talk uh, in the book about the ways in which leadership uh, affected the uh, ability to endure these conditions. And there, I think you do find a difference between the Germans and the British. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, leadership is is, is, is very important, um, partly because you need uh, leaders who are trusted um, so that men will fulfill the orders of the high command. Um, and junior junior officers, people like uh, lieutenants and, and, and captains act as sort of intermediaries between the high command on one hand and the, the common soldiery on the other. Um, but it's also important because above all what soldiers need in this in this chaos is a sense of control. Um, and officers are to some extent able to provide that if you're in a group led by a trusted officer who you believe is capable um, then you're more likely to feel safe than if you're sitting in a muddy trench by yourself being shelled and, and, and feeling totally powerless. So officers are, 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 are very important both for getting orders carried out and also for the psychological health of both armies. Um, and what, what I found was that generally the British officers do a better job than the Germans. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. It's surprising at face value because both armies recruit their officers from pretty much the same social backgrounds. They recruit them from the upper and upper middle classes principally. The, the British change that a bit towards the end of the war. They, uh, they, they begin to recruit even working class officers because they're, they're running out of upper class men to recruit. Um, but the idea behind this, the rationale on both parts, is that these men, um, from their peacetime experiences, uh, should be naturally paternalistic. Um, they should be able to look after their men in the trenches, and they should naturally know how to do that, because in peacetime they ran factories if they were slightly older men, or, or, or simply they were used to dealing with servants if they were younger men. Um, and what's been argued in, in, in both pre-war societies is that these these very sort of strict class structures functioned because there was a paternalism deference exchange mm-hmm. where um, the uh, the upper classes um, would look after their in the parlance of the time um, social inferiors and in return their social inferiors would respect them and keep their place in society mm-hmm. and the idea is that this was was transferred into the trenches the reason why it works better on the British side than the German side is, is not because of any British 
national superiority. I was incredibly skeptical of uh, of anything of that nature, which you sometimes get in uh, in, in in the literature. But it, it's really two things. One is that the British consistently have a lot more officers in their units than the Germans do. Um, so simply there are more officers to look after the men. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is that um, the uh, the German army suffers very, very severe food shortages from about 1916, from spring 1916. And the antagonism between other ranks and officers also begins really at this period. And the problem is, is that the paternism deference exchange begins to break down at this period because um, it's okay to accept the upper class's privileges when you've yourself got enough to eat, even mm-hmm. if it's not that great. But when people don't have enough to eat, then they become increasingly resentful. And this, is, this, this causes some interrank antagonism in the German army. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I've seen some of these things that you mentioned in terms of uh, coping mechanisms and relying on leadership in my... Um, I hope this is not an offensive analogy to anyone who uh, served in our armed forces, but in sports, I used to play a lot of sports, very competitive sports, and I know Uh that I had all kinds of superstitions. I had Mm -hmm. shirts that I would wear on game days, in particular socks that I liked, and I would tie my shoes a certain way. And then I I also, when there was somebody on my team who I felt uh, could somehow carry us, I always mm-hmm. played better myself uh-huh. because I, there, there was there was there was a sense of control. The, the person who I'm thinking about is uh, actually a very old friend of mine, Greg Williams, who was really a great player, basketball player in this case, and and he he was able to carry us. It seemed to to me, and and that really gave me great confidence. And when he wasn't there, I I, I know that I had much less confidence. I, I I don't know how that translates into into what you found in the book, but I can easily imagine uh, how these things might work to ease a certain amount of psychological stress. So in that sense, the book and its arguments about how the soldiers coped rings very, very true to me. I nonetheless find it remarkable that they were able to cope with these things, and it's a question that I've had forever because I I just don't... It's so far, at least it seems, aside from these analogies, so far out of our experience. But uh, I, I I think what you say rings quite true, though. One of the things that I, I, I tried to do as well was that, I mean, on one hand, as you said, it's totally outside our experience. But on, on the other hand, and people are people. And um, as well as using these historical sources, I was really quite keen to use some cognitive and social psychological studies, mm-hmm. you know, exper- experiments done in the 50s and afterwards on how people think, how people assess risk, how, how, how they act, um, because it applies just as much today the, the the thought processes the, mm-hmm. the tricks that people use as as as, as it did 50 or 100 or 200 or 500 years mm-hmm. ago i mean there's culture is important I'm, I'm i'm not saying that it isn't but there's some common humanity i think that just stretches right through the ages and mm-hmm. as you said you know this 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 stuff with with sport with the superstitions or even if you're feeling nervous, you know, going into an exam, having some sense of control, even if, even though it's, you know, you're you're not likely to be blown to bits by a shell. It's just an exam, you know. It's uh, it's it, 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 it's part of, of sort of the basic the basic necessities. I think that people need to feel okay to keep on functioning, and, actually, and, and they I do. I was going to say actually, it's funny you mentioned this. It just reminded me that my um, my son who is, uh, let's see, he's about two years old, since he was very young, um, has had 
a thing that he calls good good, and that is a blanket. It's a <laughs> it's a it's it's what is known in the trade. I didn't know there was a word for this, but apparently every kid has one. It's called a lovey in the United States. And when this blanket is with him, everything is fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, when this blanket is not with him. Everything is not fine. <laughs> in uh-huh. fact, everything is coming apart. And then, you know, he needs to see it or hold it. Um, he smiles when it's there. It's, it's, it seems to bring um, a, a kind of relief to him that no person, neither my wife or I, can. And my daughter actually is developing in the same way. She has a lovey of her own. But this is pure native superstition. This is, this is unprompted by anything. Mm-hmm. He was born with this. Um, this tendency to want to do this. And I, again, having talked to people who do childcare for a living, apparently every child is born with this desire for some, uh, some, some animate object that will mm-hmm. give them comfort. So it's certainly no wonder that we carry these things on into adulthood because I can't but think that we're hardwired for it. Um, I, I only imagine that I have some of these crutches. I'm trying to think what they are right now. I do have a special coffee mug that I really like, but I don't know that if I lost it, I would start crying. Um, I might. I don't know. Let me um, let me ask you to go on to the third part of the book, which I, I think in a way is the, is the most uh, controversial because you overturn the conventional wisdom or the received view to some extent about why the German army collapsed in 1918. Maybe you could begin by sketching what the conventional view was before your book. Well, the argument that was put forward was was that um, in 1918, the, uh, the Germans had been fighting for four years. Um, the chances of winning up until October 1917, by the end of 1917, aren't looking great. They just had the the Battle of Ypres, um, there have begun to be some discipline is loosening in the army, but then you get the revolution, uh, the Russian Revolution, and uh, this closes down the Eastern Front, it allows the uh, Germans to bring over a lot of men to the West, and they organize a massive offensive in order to finally knock the Western Allies out of the war uh, from March 1918. And the argument went was that this offensive was not a success, which was quite right. It wasn't a success. It had a lot of initial tactical successes. They gathered a lot of ground, but ultimately it didn't break the armies. And uh, it caused a lot of casualties in the German army. It forced German soldiers to recognize that the war can be won. And the argument went was that when this offensive failed and they recognized that the war wasn't to be won, um, they also recognized that the German army high command was um, playing politics, that it was um, going for a total victory under totally unrealistic conditions. Um, and therefore, they decided that this, this was not a pursuit worth continuing. And they, they absconded, they deserted. Shirking is a, is a key term that's, that's, that's used as well. They simply didn't fight anymore. And it's argued that between 750,000 and a million soldiers just simply didn't fight in the second half of 1918. And this in turn allowed the, uh, allowed the Allies to advance and, um, well, and forced the German German war effort to its knees. Mm-hmm. What I argued was was something different, and what I argued was that the German army is indeed defeated in 1918, and it's defeated on the battlefield. 
Um, but it's not defeated because of this massive uh, indiscipline that is said to have taken place. In fact, when I looked into this a bit more, I found that actually there's very, very little evidence of indiscipline at the front in the German army in the second half of 1918. You get towards, well, towards the end of the offensives in spring, early summer, you get very small mutinies which aren't politically related. They're simply because soldiers have been uh, over the top again and again and again, and they're simply physically and psychologically too exhausted to continue. And often they happen either in the trenches or just, just behind the lines, and soldiers just say, no, you know, we can't do this anymore. But there's no real challenge to the command structure. There's no major divisional uh, level mutinies, um, as far as we can tell, um, as was the case in, say, the French army in 1917 or, mm-hmm. or in the in the Russian army, um, and in fact, the instance of mutiny seems to drop once uh, once the German offensive ceases. Mm-hmm. And what I argued was I, I I drew a bit on on Neil Ferguson's idea that um, surrenders actually bring about the end of the war, and what you find is that there are enormous numbers of surrenders. When you look at the figures for shirking that are put forward, in contrast, actually, um, I, when I did this, I, I, I found that these figures for shirking were actually very arbitrary. They were put forward by all sorts of people who had all sorts of ulterior motives. Um, they don't find any real uh, support in contemporary documentation. Um, and they're just deeply, deeply, deeply dubious. But the surrender figures, we do know there, there, there were lots of surrenders. So the, the question was, how do, you, um, how do you explain these mass surrenders but this lack of indiscipline? Um, and what I found was that it's officers who are the keystone of the army. And it's officers who organize these surrenders, who make possible the surrenders. And this also explains why there's very little... Uh, in discipline as well, because there's simply no point in mutinying or deserting if you know that your officer agrees with you that we haven't got a chance of winning this war, we have to end it somehow, but, or not even we have to end it somehow, but we have to end our own personal wars somehow. We can't go on like this, and if you know your own officer is going to bring you over the top when uh, when he has the chance and, and, and bring you into surrender, then um, then there's no point in, in being disobedient. Mm-hmm. So what I argued was that... Uh, both soldiers and officers were at the end of their psychological and physical tether at this point. And what happens is not that discipline breaks down, discipline actually stays, the army stays cohesive, but because psychological uh, resilience at the front has broken down, officers lead their men over into an ordered surrender and, and therefore make further fighting simply unviable. Mm-hmm. I see. Why, why um, a skeptic might want to know why this didn't happen in 1917 or in 1916. Mm-hmm. What, how would you answer that? The simple answer is because, um, well, because firstly, German soldiers and particularly German officers weren't as exhausted in 1916 mm-hmm. and 17 as they were in 1918. They hadn't fought for as long. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, in 1916 and 1917, there, there still seemed to be a chance of winning the war. I mean, in 1916, what you find, what's remarkable about, the, about Germany's war is that you get... Um, just when things look really bad, something good happens. Um, in 1916, uh, they have the Battle of the Somme. 
it doesn't go terribly well for the British, but it has a major effect on German morale. But then they start the, uh, well, but then they, they, they beat Romania, which is a bit of a booster, and they also are able to put all their hope in the submarine war. Um, in 1917 as well, even worse, after the third Eeps, they look like they've had it. But um, then Russia is knocked out of the war and you find morale shooting up briefly again. But in 1918, with the Americans coming, um, with so many good men and good officers having died in the offensives in the spring, there's just simply no hope of, of, of continuing and they know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that um, comes to mind... And this may be some sort of generality. I don't. I like generalities. Most historians don't. But you know, it seems to me that modern professional armies don't really melt away ever. Uh, and we mm-hmm. have this notion that somehow they do. But you can think of some striking examples of unit integrity far beyond any hope of winning. I mean, the clear example is the. Wehrmacht toward the end of the Second World War when it was crystal clear that they were going to lose and most of them were going to die. They still fought very effectively right Mm -hmm. to the end. Um, And so I guess one of the things your book does for me is it brings to the fore this notion of um, unit and organizational solidarity that, that really this is very important in modern armies and they don't disintegrate, they don't melt away. They, 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 they remain, uh, they remain as units. They keep their integrity even beyond, beyond beyond what we would normally think would be the case. I mean, you would think you would run away. Sure. But you sure. don't. But you don't. And, that, and that's really the fascinating part. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Am I wrong about that? Is it? No, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I think the, the Second World War is, well, there's an interesting parallel. And I, I guess I'd explain the difference. You know, why does the German army fight to the end in the Second World War, but not in the First World War? And, um, and I guess that's a whole other book in itself, but uh, I think one of the big differences is that the Germans in the Second World War have a very ideologically motivated officer corps. Mm-hmm. Um, they're motivated with this idea that uh, um, November 1918 can't happen again, a fight to the finish. Whereas in the First World War, they've got these paternalistic beliefs, and actually, for many, it seems more important to... to save their men's lives when the, when it becomes clear that there is no possible hope of winning rather than keep on going to some to, to, to some sort of total destruction sort of type scenario like in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot, of the, a, a lot of why people don't run away, I guess, is, uh, well, it comes down to a number of things. One is that, one is that, I think most people in the First World War simply believed it was necessary. I mean, in uh, in Britain, there was a sense, in the British Army, there was a sense that the homeland is endangered, even though we're fighting in France. If we don't stop the Germans here, it will be us next. And of course, for most German troops, um, their country had been invaded at the beginning of the war. You've got the Russian invasion of East Prussia in August 1914. And... Um, there's a sense that this cannot happen again under any circumstances. And of course, when they look around the battlefield, they look at this sort of swathe of destruction that the war has reaped in, in, in Belgium and France. It's a really strong motivation just to keep going. And then, of course, if you have the majority of people feeling like that, then those who really aren't keen either feel obliged or have very little choice but to go along with it. The remarkable thing is that quite a lot of these units are, are self-policing. 
you you get military police behind the lines. It's true. You had this um, disciplinary structure with non-commissioned officers and officers, but it's quite common as well to find um, to, to, to find men ratting on comrades who are thinking about deserting mm-hmm. uh, because because you're letting the side down, you're letting the country down, but you're also letting letting the side down. I, I guess I guess it it comes back to. Um, these issues of control and trust. If you trust your unit, if you have trusted comrades, then that gives you a stronger sense of being able to control the environment around you, however chaotic it is. And anyone who damages that trust, who shakes that confidence, actually is is, is an outcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think leadership is extraordinarily important here. I, I, I really, I, I know that in the era of social history and so on and so forth from the 1960s on that we haven't paid a lot of attention to this, but it just seems to me that especially in explaining the behavior of these people in these places, that leadership is, a, is, is really the, uh, is the, is the most active and, and sort of weight-bearing variable. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, uh, precisely has to do with discipline. And again, maybe this is a bit... Um, a bit outside the territory that you feel comfortable covering, but I know that in the Second World War, the the, the Wehrmacht had an extraordinarily severe uh, disciplinary structure, and uh, I don't remember the numbers, but I think that they uh, shot uh, tens, of, well, thousands and thousands of um, their own soldiers for indiscipline. Um, mm-hmm. In in World War One, they didn't have, or did they have uh, that that sort of um, disciplinary uh, structure and and if they they did wh- why was there so very little um so very little uh indiscipline well they they didn't have that structure i mean the the really harsh discipline in the second world war in the in the german army was in some ways a, a trying a product of trying to learn lessons from the first world war i, I think they yeah i think it's something like twenty thousand they shoot in the second world war it's an extraordinarily I mean, large number horrendous yeah amazing i i i mean but in 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 the first world war actually german discipline is much more lenient than the the british discipline the british you think about 340 something like that of their own soldiers which even in the greater scheme of things you know you've got six million soldiers in the army is not an enormous amount yeah. the german army is twice as big and and their the number of men they shoot doesn't get into triple figures it's hmm. very 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 low that's just remarkable i, I just think that's that 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 is worth a a, 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 a some detailed consideration itself oh yeah well there is a book there is a book someone else someone has done it Someone has done it already. Christoph Jahr in, in, mm-hmm. in Germany has, 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 has written a book about this. But um, yeah, they uh, well, the idea was that the Nazis drew from this and the army drew from this. That um, we didn't shoot enough people in the First World War. <laughs> Look at British discipline; it was much tougher. We should have shot more people. That would have kept us kept us kept us going. And I, I mean, you can argue maybe it was right because the German army in the Second World War does. Um, does keep on going till the end, but I, I think discipline is actually it's more subtle. I think the numbers of men you shoot. I mean, okay, if you're shooting a lot of men, on one hand, that might encourage people to fight, but it's probably not going to encourage them to fight terribly well. Um, scared people don't fight as well as people who are fighting for a reason or believe in what they're doing. Um, and I. I think the important thing about discipline is not so much the number of people that armies shoot or the armies in prison. Those punishments, or maybe not even the death penalty, but fairly severe punishments have to be there more as sort of markers, 
social markers, if you like, to say to people, this is not acceptable behavior, and we're showing that this isn't acceptable behavior by putting a big penalty on it. But what's more important than discipline is actually um, socialization. It's actually getting people to feel part of an organization and getting people to think in a way that um, obedience becomes the default. Um, mm -hmm. And you do that by having all sorts of other little markers. Um, in every army, basic training is always much stricter than general army life afterwards. Um, soldiers are punished for the tiniest little things, and the idea is to instill the notion that um, the army has complete control over you, um, mm -hmm. and to get people thinking, okay, you know, I'm part of this organization that has complete control over me. And once they've internalized that, these punishments become much less necessary. They, they, need to, they, they maybe need to be there in the background, but they're not really consciously considered because people are thinking, okay, this is just how it is. There's, there's, there, there, there's no sort of conscious, or very rarely, until things get really bad, a conscious decision-making process, do I want to obey this order, in most cases. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this question. I'm, I'm just interested historiographically. How has the book, how has your book been received by the field? Have you read reviews or talked to people about it? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've read it, well, you know how it is, it's my first book, so I'm constantly Googling it to try and find <laughs> out what have people said about it. Um, by and large, it's been received really well. I, I've, I've had some really great reviews. They did a, they did a seminar on it in France as well. In, oh, great. Uh, in uh, they 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 have this various sort of organisations and uh, yeah there was there was a seminar at a university to vote to the book but frustratingly I don't know what was said so <laughs> so, so so yeah so the the honest answer is from the reviews I've read it's it's they they they've been very positive some Good. people are, are sceptical about the officer's idea mm -hmm. other people love it um, I'm waiting to see whether anyone is going to write a response but. Uh, I've read everything, you know, this is terribly arrogant, but I've read everything. I know I'm right on this, so, uh, I, okay. I, you know, I, I, well, you know. Well, I think you're right. And then we, and then I, I did, we talked about this in the pre-interview. Um, one of the things, if the people at uh, Cambridge University Press are, are listening, uh, one of the things that's a bit disturbing about the book, there's nothing disturbing about what's in it, but is that it cost uh, a fortune uh, currently yeah. to buy it. And you explained to me that they're coming out with a paperback edition. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be out in November 2011 in the UK, and I think January 2000, uh, November 2011, what's this year, 2009, November of this year, November 2009 this year in the UK, and uh, January of next year in the US. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, if your editor is listening and the, 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 the people at, at, uh, at the press, this is the kind of book that I would use in my military history class if it were affordable. That's a big if, but uh, if you can bring the price down to the point where an American student can um, afford it, I would definitely have my students read this. Buy and read this book, and we'll make Alex rich as well. So I went. Oh well, <laughs> well, thanks very much for that. Certainly. Um, well, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and, and I really appreciate it. Let me uh, close the interview with our traditional final question: What is uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Uh, well, I'm I'm working on two things. One is that uh, I, I've got very interested in Poland, um, so I'm working on a comparative study of uh, the Polish soldiers who fought in the German and Austro-Hungarian armies during the First World War. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing that partly because uh, the problem with looking at the British and the German armies is that soldiers on both sides had a pretty strong sense of 
um, national identity. Um, and it was sort of difficult to see how important that was, because if you can, can try to compare them, there wasn't that much difference. And I thought, well, if I compare a, a minority, mm-hmm. which doesn't have the same allegiance uh, to the state for which it's fighting, and of course, um, at this point, Germany had a Polish minority of about 3 million uh, Poles. Um, Austria-Hungary also had a significantly, quite quite a large Polish minority. Um, if we, if if I can see how they fought compared to ethnic Germans, then I should actually be able to find out how important patriotism is as a motivation in in uh, in, uh, in 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 combat. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of the question. And the other thing as well is I'm interested because um, I'm interested in it because it's a question of uh, of integration. How do you integrate minorities? And mm-hmm. I, I I'm working on the basis that. If you're asking these people to um, fight for the state which governs them, that um, that actually should suggest how effective your integration policy has been, how loyal they are. And interesting thing about uh, the Habsburgs and the Prussians before the war is that from about 1870, 1867, 1870, both of them are very worried about the loyalty of their of their Polish minorities, and they they deal with this in very different ways. The uh, the Prussians attempt to assimilate them, to Germanize them. Um, the, uh, the Habsburgs go the other way and adopt a very laissez-faire policy, give them a lot of cultural and even political autonomy. So by looking at how these these minorities in these two, two armies fought compared with their German compatriots, um, I also want to see if I can say something about the effectiveness of the uh, of the peacetime integration techniques. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that's one project. And the other thing is... Um, I'm under contract to write a book for basic books in the US and Penguin here in the UK um, on the uh, on the Central Powers wartime experiences, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's a big, big, big project, and uh, and it's very exciting, and that will that will come out in 2014. So, uh, 2014. Wow. 2014. I've wow. got a bit of I've got a bit of time on it, My but work is work is underway. I've, I've visited quite a lot of interesting places and yeah, it's coming together I, uh, I I don't really know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow I get a little 2014 that is like yeah it's a long time in the future well uh, it's good to know that you're occupied you know <laughs> yeah. um, well I should tell our listeners we've been talking to Alexander Watson and we've been talking about his terrific book Enduring the Great War um, Alex let me thank you again for being on the show well thanks very much too I really enjoyed talking to okay, you okay thanks a lot take care now bye 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 You've been listening to an interview with Alexander Watson, author of Enduring the Great War, Combat, Morale, and Collapse in the German and British Armies, 1914-1918. to I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.